Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. So welcome Rebel Educators to this episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome Rebel Educators. I'm here today with A.J. Craybill. He's the governance director at the Council of Great City Schools and serves as conservator at DeSoto ISD, where during his guidance, DeSoto improved from F ratings in academics, finance, and governance to B ratings. He's also served as deputy commissioner at the Texas Education Agency and as board chair of Kansas City Public Schools. AJ believes that student outcomes don't change until adult behaviors change. Changing adult behaviors requires new mindsets, new knowledge, and new skills. His intention is to transform student outcomes through the transformation of adult mindsets, knowledge, and skills, starting with his own. Welcome, AJ. Thanks for having me. I'd love to start there. Tell me about your own transformation of your own mindset and knowledge as you've grown in this work. Yeah. As I reflect back on the journey, one of the things that really jumps out is the gulf between my intentions and my impact really early on and kind of in each layer of my engagement with public education system, whether it's been local at the district level or at the state level. And that kind of in each place, I've always shown up with the same aspiration for how do we really create something amazing for students. But initially in all three realms, there's just been this goals between what I hoped would be the reality and kind of what I was actually creating early on. My more recent work has essentially been an exploration of that, of where are all the things where I didn't have the impact that I wanted on behalf of the students I served and what would have made a difference. A large part of if we really want to see something great happening in classrooms, it, it happens in the interaction between the learner and the educator. And there's this continuous improvement process that goes on and you know, it's about being clear about what is it that I want my students to know and be able to do and what, what's the lesson plan I'm creating for that and how am I monitoring progress you know, using short cycle assessments and, and then based on that evidence, kind of how am I adjusting uh, my practice and just kind of this continuous improvement loop. Well, it turns out that that same approach is the same thing that I've needed at each step of the way and, and the more quickly that I've moved through that continuous improvement loop, the, the more quickly I've been able to close the gap between my intentions and the impact that I was actually having. As it turns out, that same continuous improvement process is just as relevant in the boardroom as it is in the classroom. It it looks a little bit different, um, but it's essentially the same set of steps. It's about getting clear about your priorities, about having a way of measuring the impact that you're making in real time so that you can pivot in real time, and then constantly realigning resources and and then being in communication with people around you. Uh, so that's the same work that, that I've had to engage in. Every new role that I've played has been that continuous improvement process. And now I'm trying to share some of what I've gained about that with folks who are curious about school boards across the country. Like here, 
a similar thing when I talk to educators when they're looking at changing the way that they teach in the classroom, if they're moving from a traditional to more of a project-based approach, that it's a struggle with the mindset of the educators. Or if you have a school leader who wants to shift the school culture from one that's more of a traditional learning to one that's more of an inquiry learning, and how do we shift the mindset of those educators? And kind of if if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is a very similar thing, but how are we shifting the mindset of the school boards to really have the impact that we want to be able to have? How have you found that process? So it's a challenge. And and I think part of the challenge to your your first question around what's my own transformation been like, the assumption that I knew what I was doing and that I had answers and things were figured out had to die first. And a commitment to continuous improvement had to step forward to take its place. I think that same conversation, this mindset of continuous growth, continuous improvement, that has to come in and usurp any sense that, well, I'm a school board member now, so therefore I know everything. So let me replace the wisdom of all of the dedicated people in the system with my own wisdom. Like that, that has to die as quickly as possible. And in its place, as a really focused mindset first around why school systems exist, which is to improve student outcomes. It's the only reason that school systems exist. School systems don't exist to help me look good as an elected official. They don't exist to serve school lunches. They don't exist to keep parents and teachers happy. They don't exist to have great buildings or balanced budgets. All of those are things that school systems do uh, for good reason, but none of those are why the school system exists. And so if I'm really going to take this first step and merge in the sense of a focused mindset, Part of that is about being clear that it's going to be the continuous improvement of my behavior, changes in my adult behavior that are going to pave the way. And part of that mindset is about being clear that the only reason the school system exists is to improve student outcomes. And the speed with which leaders can wrestle with that shift in mindset and really embrace that mindset really describes how long it will take them to move from intention that doesn't match impact to intention that does to move from failure to effectiveness. I love that. Needing to kill our assumptions of what we believe to be true and instead create a cycle of continuous growth. Yeah. Yeah. So important. I have a few different friends that serve on school boards around the area. And one of the things that I continually hear is similar to what you said in the beginning is that they have these great intentions for the things that they could see and And changes they believe could happen. And then they come into school boards and school meetings and talking to school leaders. And yeah, it's just so hard to try and get those ideas through and implemented and even in a trial or in a pilot. But even the way you're describing it has potential to be problematic in that. And I did the same thing. So in a previous career, I was a computer programmer, web developer, computer nerd all the way. And so when I first joined my local school board, computer technology is what I understood really well. And so I immediately noticed all of the areas where technology was deficient in our school system. I, I'd see that these computers are antiquated and so how are teachers possibly going to teach? These computers just don't even work. How are students possibly going to learn? And the number one thing we need to do to really improve student outcomes in the school district is we've got to get the technology right. The financial system is antiquated, so it's not giving us good information for decision-making. And so I was absolutely out of it that we had to get the technology right in order to set students up for success. With the benefit of hindsight, 
it's incredibly obvious that that was 100% about ego and 0% about children. Don't misunderstand. I was absolutely correct that the technology was antiquated, but I wasn't pursuing a focus on technology because that's what children needed. I was pursuing a focus on technology. Why? That's what you knew. Because that's what I knew. And that's the victory of ego over purpose. It's showing up and saying, this is the thing that I'm going to reach for because this is what I understand most. This is how I feel like tribute most. And the commitment to continue to prove it forces you to confront, this is actually not about me. It's not about the gifts that I have or what I'm hoping to contribute. It's really got to be about what do students need? And only within that context, then we can evaluate the relative value of any particular strategy. But this way that I showed up where I was trying to force upon the system, here are all the good ideas I have from the bounty of wisdom that I possess. All others just subscribe to my wisdom and all will be grand again. Like this is, this is arrogance and foolishness of the highest order. Um, and, and only in beginning to actively try to figure out how to kill that off and instead embrace a student outcomes focused approach to governing. Was I actually able to begin to move in the direction of my impact matching my intentions? I'm hearing something that we talk a lot about with our educators when we go into any difficult conversation, and that's not coming in with those preconceived notions, but instead entering with curiosity of, you know, here's here's all the things that I know and I can bring those things. And part of why I'm here is because I have those things, right? Yeah. But like, what's really happening here? What's really our focus? What's really the bottom line? And how can we get curious about all of the different ways that we can look at changing whether it's the systems or the processes or the mindsets or, you know, how can we get curious about the things that we can make a difference with? Yeah. And unfortunately, often the brain can be the enemy of the mind. A buddy of mine bought a Tesla. Um, and so I was super excited about the Tesla, you know, telling me all about their Tesla. Uh, I got to take a ride in the Tesla. I got to press the button that makes it go fast. <laughs> and now my brain is primed to see Tesla. Like everywhere I look around, like I see all the Teslas now that I had never noticed before. That there aren't actually more Teslas on the road today than there were yesterday. Not to a meaningful degree. What's different is that my brain is now keyed into the pattern of Tesla. Is paying very close attention to that. And so now I'm showing up and recognizing more of that than I had before. I think this is the same challenge. We walk into any new setting, we've got things that we're already primed to see, even if that's not the thing that's most powerful to see. You know, even the thing that our students need us to see is something else. If all I see is the thing that my brain is already primed to see, living into the mindset that's legitimately student outcomes focused is just a lot harder to do. Kind of on that thread, you work with a lot of different school boards around the country and talking about improving student outcomes and talking about what students need. Do you see any commonality amongst different school boards and the different districts that you work with that are the things that students need right now that they're not getting or ways of shifting that is slow to happen? So two things on this. First, each community's vision for what its students should not be able to do is going to be a little bit different. Yeah, and so whether you're in the Bay Area, you know, or you're in Miami, whether you're in Maine or LA, the specific set of needs that a community has for what students should know and be able to do is going to be very different. Uh, when I work with a school board um, in a community that's on the Gulf Coast, 
they're talking about how amazing it would be for the students to be ready for some of the oil and gas jobs and some of the marine biology jobs. You know, when I work with districts that are in Iowa, I hear people talk about agricultural opportunities and uh, the various wind farms, you know, renewable energy that they've got going out there. And so the, the context does tend to significantly alter what it is that a community wants to be focused on on behalf of the children in that community. So the first one to clarify that, that really is part of the role of the school board is to be dialed into what is the vision this community has for what a student should know and be able to do and how do we build a school system that is specifically keyed into that. And so in that regard, no, I absolutely don't see a ton of districts that are identical because each of them is coming at it from their own context. But that part aside, if I had to identify one thing that I'd want to see in more of our schools is that my sense is that when we see the most powerful things happening in the classroom, it's the confluence of effective educators and highly engaged learners. When learners show up and they are just trying to soak it, I don't know if you've ever uh, been teaching a lesson and you had some students and they were just pulling the lesson to you. You could barely even have to you know, put it out there and they were just grabbing it in, with both hands. Like that is an amazing, amazing context for which to teach. And so this idea of the engagement of the learner uh, being one major factor and the effectiveness of the teacher, you know, we, we've all had that experience of seeing that teacher who's just through their power of the craft and their sense of connection and relationship was able to get through to kids who, you know, like me, who weren't trying to get gotten. But <laughs> teachers broke through you know, my hard-headedness nevertheless. And so those two factors, the effectiveness of the teacher, you know, the engagement of the student. And so if there's anything that comes to mind that I'd immediately want to see more of is certainly school systems, I think, try to be intentional about how do we help support the effectiveness of our educators? What ways are we finding to increase their content knowledge, their pedagogical skill set, and so on and so forth? I'd really enjoy seeing more and more school systems focus on, on how are we increasing the engagement of the students, and particularly in my mind, how are we increasing our sense of agency within their own school? One of the projects that I'm working on right now is I'm working with four schools, four high schools, and we're deploying a student-led restorative practices framework. And so when we're done implementing, we're just in the pilot phase now. This is the first year of the pilot, and we'll really start deploying it in the fall. But when we've got this fully deployed, when little AJ makes an unfortunate choice, instead of going to the assistant principal and let's open up the handbook and figure out which uh, discipline goes along with which infraction and that whole scenario, instead, little AJ would be sent to a group of his peers who've been trained to lead a restorative process and really get at the heart of what was going through your mind? What was your thinking? What was your lived experience in the moment when you made the choice that you made? Not in a, at all in a sense of, condemnation or criticism, but just really trying to understand and get in little AJ's world. But also let little AJ, here's somebody who was negatively impacted by the choice you made. I want you to hear their perspective as well and what, what this was like to them. And then in the context of little AJ being open to taking responsibility for his behavior, collectively creating a plan that everybody agrees to, little AJ as well as the person who's been harmed, for what little AJ is going to do to repair the harm that he's created. And having students lead that process, and in that way, students becoming more and more owners and drivers of the culture and climate of the building, when their behavior challenges, 
I want to see students be able to have a leadership voice in addressing that before it ever even gets to, and ideally it never makes it to the adults. And so looking for ways for how can students have a sense of ownership and agency of their learning experience in the culture and climate, certainly the way I've described, but also in instruction, the love opportunities for students to play a leadership role in delivering instruction in the classroom. And so anything that begins to really push the envelope on how do we see students experience a high degree of engagement. That's one of the things that I'm, I'm really curious about. Uh, are there strategies there that, that we haven't laid to as much as we could? Yeah. As a self-pronounced rebel educator and as, as a leader of a progressive school, you know, we're fully on board with restorative practices and project-based learning and building student agency and giving students as much independence for their culture and creating their environment and creating their experience as we possibly can. I'm super curious, coming from a school board aspect, when so much is judged, you know, when you're looking at improvements and ratings and judgments, so much of that is coming from standardized testing Mm -hmm. and how you create an alignment between those things of building student agency and, and having them create their culture and their curriculum and their experience, but still you know, making sure or working towards those standardized test scores and the ratings and the rankings that are are all standardized when you're working with a group of unstandardized students. Yeah. So the first question with assessment is, is it aligned to our vision for what students should know and be able to do? But I think part of the reason people get really frustrated with standardized assessment is if you have assessment, it doesn't actually line up with what we're trying to accomplish. And so, for example, I really, really want my children to be literate. And so any assessment that helps me understand to what degree are they literate, where are gaps in that, so that informs what investments do we need to make in a school system to better prepare our students to be able to read, that's important to me. In the same way that standardized assessment at the formative level that teachers are deploying is absolutely essential to help them understand what students know and are able to do, and then to be able to pivot instruction. So teachers need to be engaged in standardized formative assessment. That helps them understand how to pivot instruction at the classroom level. School systems need to be engaged in standardized formative assessment at the systems level to help them understand how to pivot resources. And uh, if we find out that that these particular three schools that students are falling behind in this area, do we need to move resources from someplace else and put it there? Those are questions that standardized assessment at the district level are really, really effective at helping you answer. If they're aligned to what it is that you're trying to actually get students to know and be able to do. And so I, I think the biggest frustration I run across to isn't that people have problems with standardized instruction. I'm, honestly, when I break it down, I don't come across anybody who really has a problem with standardized assessment. What I run across is people have a problem with standardized assessment that is just poorly designed or that is not aligned or that is used in really harmful ways. Those I hear people have concerns about, but I don't see the assessment being what's problematic. I see either the design of the assessment or the use of the assessment being problematic. And those are things that I think school boards are uniquely positioned to help account for. How would you help a school board look at that? Or how would you help them to be more effective in making sure that there is alignment between the culture that they want, the things that they're doing, and the outcomes that 
they're getting. Yeah. And that's kind of where we started. But I feel like sometimes there's definitely friction just in that alignment, you know, and, and you can't yeah. have the impact when you're not aligned with your intentions. So how do we create that? This is what we want. This is what we're doing. And this is what we're getting and make sure that those three things are aligned. Well, but th- this is one of the things that's been honestly. That's what you do every day. <laughs> is because what will happen, and I've just seen this so many times, is I visit a lot of schools uh, in a lot of states each year. And in my position with the state agency in Texas, one of the teams that I supported was our school improvement team. And so we'd go out to the lowest performing 5% of schools across the nation. So I, I suspect I've probably visited more low performing schools than most people have just because that was part of the job. And even in those schools, the lowest performing schools in the state of Texas, I can't tell you of a single time where I walked into a school and ran into a bunch of lazy teachers. I can't think of a single time where I showed up with people, they just, well, they just don't care about kids. We would just get the teachers who care about kids and it'd be great. I never saw that. And if anybody was going to see it, it was going to be me, but I never saw it. It got to the point I actively looked for it. It's like, do, do they even exist? And in my five years with the agency, I just never came across that. What I came across was people working hard, people putting as much energy as they can, leaving it all on the field, bringing all of their passion and desire for what's great for children with them all day every day. Now, that being said, it was often completely unaligned. So imagine floating down a river in a canoe, 10 people in a canoe, and everybody rowing as hard as they possibly can, giving it all they've got putting everything they can into that oar to try to support their canoe being effective. Now, all 10 of them are rowing in different directions and they're rowing at different speeds. And basically the canoe is just kind of swirling around. Eventually, if it doesn't capsize, which it probably will, the best case scenario is that it's probably just going to go wherever the flow of the river is going. But any intention isn't going to be honored just by the flurry of activity. And that's what I often see is a lot of people are working really, really hard, but in deeply unaligned ways. And so they're not realizing what they want, not because they're not working hard, but because they're just all rowing in different directions in the same canoe. And this is what I see when I see assessment that isn't aligned, is that people think you go all year, like we're doing this interim assessment or these unit assessment, it tells us everything is great. Then we get to the end of the year, we take this summative assessment and it says everything is horrible. Well, that's demoralizing. What it suggests is that there was either not an alignment between the instruction and the summative expectations or not alignment between the interim assessment and the summative expectations. This is a very common phenomenon is we want children to know and be able to do something over here, but then what we assess is way over here. And when those two don't make sense, the experience is often one of frustration and people should be frustrated. That is not a workable context in which to serve. And so a large part of the work that I wind up doing is working with school boards and superintendents and senior leadership teams to actually test. What we require is actually test. Do the math. Show me the statistical correlation between this assessment and this set of standards. And when we see a lack of correlation, that means we've got to begin to change our adult behavior and find ways of assessing that are either more authentic or more aligned. That is a righteous journey for school systems to be on. But unfortunately, probably the majority of schools I've worked with have had this alignment problem. It's absolutely killing the spirit of educators and children 
not because assessment is a bad thing, but bad assessment is a bad thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Switching gears a little bit. This wasn't on our question list. We haven't talked about this. I'm just going to throw this out there. We're rebels. We're rebels. (laughs) We're rebels. Let's do it. It's a current event that keeps coming up that I keep seeing that I keep hearing people talking about. And I'm curious what you're hearing from school boards or what your personal opinion is regarding the use and, and emergence of chat. GPT and other AI platforms that are coming up that, you know, we talk about wanting our students to be literate and there's now AI that can write full essays for us. <laughs> Chad GPT, I'm a fan, but keep in mind, former career computer nerd. So tech toys, <laughs> like, fair enough. <laughs> off meat flame. Like it, it was a done deal from the moment. I, have you played with it yet? Have you used it? Oh, yeah, we've started to use it for some marketing. My husband has been using it to write his like AYSO soccer coaching emails. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a fun toy. It is an amazing, amazing tool. But rewind time, I don't know, 25 years or so. And think about when his word processors started to mature and all of them started to get the features of being able to do spell check and grammar check. Yeah, mine was older than that. I'm dating myself now, but my first word processor had 16, a little 16 character window, and I had to catch the spelling and grammar errors in those 16 characters. Otherwise, I had to go back with the whiteout. <laughs> uh, so this stuff was not automated in the beginning. In the beginning, the human had to catch the spelling and the grammatical errors. And then through the power of technology, all of a sudden, we had tech that could catch those things for us. And there were folks who said, well, wait a minute, is that cheating? Now, certainly, the technology we have is a little bit beyond that. But this is not the first time we've had this conversation. School says we've had to adapt to the advent of calculators on every cell phone. Is that cheating? So over time, my sense is that our exploration of what are the expectations we have with students have begun to shift. I don't know teachers anywhere who are thinking to themselves, I'm going to assign a typed paper and I expect them to turn off spell check and grammar check. Like, I don't know teachers who are doing that. They have to do it on a typewriter. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, if, but, but that's the thing. If you were wanting to measure for that, you couldn't assign a typed up paper that they're going to just type up in Word and print off. You'd have to modify your instruction or modify your expectations. And the expectation is, I expect there to be no grammatical errors. I expect there to be no spelling errors, where a teacher may have been forgiving about that in one context two decades ago, I suspect are less likely to be forgiving about it in the same context now, because the expectations are beyond that. One of the things that Chad GPT brings forward is it puts a lot of ideas out there. Now, a lot of us ideas are kind of half-baked, and that's been demonstrated. I think Google just lost a hundred million dollars in shareholder value overnight <laughs> with their AI system. Oops. Came back with an error. And so there's certainly a lesson here. Don't expect that it's going to be right all the time. You know, we're still going to have to be responsible. But I think the reality that the examples I give don't compare to ChatGPT. I, I know that. I, I know that. But the process I think is going to be similar. There's no scenario where we're like, we'll just wait this thing out because AI will go away. Like, that's not a thing. And so I, I think in the same way that educators have had to adapt to emergent technology and the impact it has on instruction, 
I think that we're going to go through that again. I think we'll come back to this conversation 10 years from now. It'll sound incredibly anachronistic because by that time, folks will have figured out how to integrate these tools into instruction rather than doing what some districts are doing and trying to ban them. Yeah, I could see maybe, maybe justify a short-term ban of about six months to get the last semester. But realistically, that was never going to fly. Uh, the tools are out here. And I think the wise school system is going to do what, what we've always done. Is we'll adapt to it. And our expectations of our students will grow. Okay, now it's not enough to have a typed up paper. It needs to be typed up and be grammatically correct. Well, now it can do grammar for you. Well, now it's not enough to have a grammatically correct paper. It has to be really thoughtful in its use of the five paragraphs outline of five paragraphs essay model. Okay, well, now it can credit count five paragraph essays. Okay, well, now it's not enough for that. What is the next level of expectation that we'll have for students? And so that's where I see this thing going is it, it's not going away. And so we're going to have to figure out what is the way to adapt both our instructional methods to account for this, in some way, maybe our assessment methods to account for this. But certainly, how's this going to modify the expectations that we have of students and what quality student work looks like in the future? Personally, I want students using these type of tools. I, I can see so much opportunity for students to have access to ideation that they might not have easily had access to before that can be a bridge to more powerful and in-depth work. But it's going to be on us to figure out how to make sure that that's authentic and an expression of their work. I think we set them up to fail if the response becomes, well, let's just police them into making sure that these new technologies aren't used. That's not going to work at all. What are your takes on it? Oh, I got excited hearing you, you talk about it as I'm thinking about we're launching a middle school and having our middle schoolers do mind maps of their interests and making sure that we're hitting adjacent interests to those. And mm-hmm. and the reality is there's only so many things that all of us know about in the world, but there may be other things out there that would take us a long time to research. And those are the kinds of things that we can say, hey, like, here's my list of interests. What other things might I find interesting? Yeah. Like, what other things do people who like these things find interesting? And suddenly being able to use it to brainstorm in new ways and bring in new ideas that, like, our small collaborative group, even though there's a lot of knowledge amongst, you know, three, four, five, eight people, suddenly you can use this other tool to bring in so many other things that then you can think about and look at and weed through and bring in. So not only just the applications of you know, how do we have it write a five paragraph essay for it? But also like, how do we use it to help us give different perspectives? How do we use it to help us brainstorm? How do we use it to help us write projects and bring in ideas that we all kind of get in our tunnels? And no matter how wide that tunnel is, it's it's still our tunnel. And how can we use it to open up those perspectives in that world? Well, and again, and my expectations are going to increase. Yeah. What I expect of the thoughtfulness of your ideation as a student is going to increase. Sure, feel free to use ChatGPT, but understand that the how well flushed out your argument is. I used to expect this. I now expect this. And you have the tools at your disposal to challenge your thinking and figure out how to get here. One of the things that I've enjoyed doing is I'll throw a paragraph of something that I've written in ChatGPT. Criticize this. Tell me what's wrong with this. How how might I improve it? You know, give me ten things that would make this a better paper. 
a better paragraph. And it, and it will. It will dutifully tear my writing apart. I think that begins to point the direction in ways that this will be useful. I expect students to have more well-formed ideas and arguments as a result of having access to technology like this. And when they don't, my response is likely to be, go do more work. Like this is, this is not the level of refinement that I now expect given the tools that are available to you. It also makes me wonder how that'll help our students to grow socially and emotionally from being able to take criticism perspective because now the criticism isn't necessarily coming from your teacher in the example you gave like that's right it's not oh it's not biased it's not this person doesn't like me it's not i got a d on my last paper so they're grading me down on this paper but you're getting criticism from a computer so like you i mean i guess you can be mad at the computer but how like how can that help us grow as humans and understanding our own you know back to egos but our own ego and our own areas for growth yeah the question isn't did Mr. Crable give me this score because I was being disruptive in his class last week and he's still frustrated at me about it? No, this feedback, just the feedback that the computer spit out. So yeah, I think it gives students an opportunity to, to just really play with what are other perspectives of my work that I can reach out for and get at any time that is disconnected from kind of the ongoing tangle of human relationships. And, and I, to your point, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, I think that could be really valuable. I, I can imagine all the ways that as a student that would have been really valuable to me. So I want to be cognizant of time, and I know we're already running over. I also know you have another book coming out, so I'd love to give you a few minutes to share You know what motivated you to write your upcoming book and, and who's the audience for that. Yeah, so this book, Great on Their Behalf, um, Why School Boards Fail and How Yours to Become Effective, is really for anybody who is interested in how do we make our schools better? How do we have them be more effective at improving student outcomes? And who sees a role in either advocating with, collaborating with, or serving on a school board as an avenue for that continuous improvement. That's really the theme of the book is how do we continuously improve? What does that continuous improvement process look like in the board mode? And really challenges school boards across the nation to consider that if we are intentionally focused on student outcomes in the boardroom, that has an impact in the classroom. If we aren't in creating a culture of continuous improvement in the boardroom, that trickles down that it has an impact in the classroom. And so we really want to live into the full possibility of our school system. What adult behavior are we willing to change in the boardroom that's really going to open our school system up to having access to that? So it's been a real joy to try to get my thinking clear about what has worked and hasn't worked in this domain over the past couple of decades and finally distill it into a form that I I certainly hope is of use to any parent or teacher out there who's thinking about how do I advocate with the school board or how do I eventually serve it? That's all of you, Rebel Educators. Make sure you get AJ's book. Bring it. Yes. Thank you so much. How can people get in touch with you? You know, the easiest way is probably just email. Uh, You can go to ajcrable.com. It's ajcrable.com. Or just email me, aj at ajcrable.com. In particular, I love hearing from folks who have really found a way to get remarkable results. And I want to distinguish. I'm not talking about people who are excited about a project they're working on 
or people who really enjoy something or something is really popular. I'm not actually curious about any of those. I am curious about if any of those are true, lovely, but more what I'm curious about is something that you actually have evidence has made a difference, has moved the needle for your students. Um, and so anybody who's really working on something that you have the documented evidence in reality, not in perception, but in reality that this has really been powerful for our young people. I always want to hear about that. And certainly with the bully pulpit that I have and the opportunity to share that with those education leaders that I serve uh, week in and week out who collectively serve around 8 million of our nation's children. Like if I can be a platform for supporting educators and local community leaders and sharing about what's going on, please share that with me. And I'd love to help folks get the word out. Amazing. Thank you so much, AJ. Thank you for your time. And appreciate you inviting me into the network. Thank you everyone for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. Upacademysf.com where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, rebel educators.